used uh, for ordinary Sundays and, and on feast days. A psalm will be chosen that's specially, specially chosen for, for what's being celebrated that day. And Prokemenon is the Prokemenon psalm is always sung in the same way in the church. It's one of the most ancient ways of singing the psalm. The cantor uh, sings the verse that's used as, a ref as the refrain. The people repeat it after him, and then he sings however many verses from the psalm are going to be sung. And after each verse, uh, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's more, sometimes it might be the whole psalm. Uh, after each verse, the people repeat the refrain, and then at the end, to kind of wrap it all up, the, the cantor sings the first half again, and the people conclude by singing the second half. So this, this use of the psalms, by the way, which is so basic to Orthodox worship, you see that, that virtually except for a few hymns, all of our singing up to this point, whether it's the antiphons or now the prokimenon, has been from the psalms. And that is because the Psalms are the prayer and songbook of the church. In the Psalms are found, as we've said before when we spoke about the rule of prayer, the entire experience of God's people in the Old and New Testament. Everything that was fulfilled in Christ is expressed there. All the, the, the Psalms, the Psalter can be seen to be, all of the scripture has been uh, distilled, condensed into them. That's why they're so central. Even before we hear readings from Scripture. There's all, they're always preceded, prokimenon, preceded by the singing of the Psalms that sets the tone for that, for the, the proclamation of Scripture. Now, uh, again, as a, as a historical note, because after the Psalm is, is sung, then we have the readings from, from Scripture. In older times in the church, uh, on, on not only at, at special feasts like it is now, but every Sunday there were three readings. Now we have only two, uh, re both of them taken from the Old Testament or the New Testament, one from the epistles and then one from the gospel. But uh, in early centuries of the church, there were more readings as you see uh, for sometimes when we have these vigils for the great feasts, there are many readings. Readings from the Old Testament, readings from the law, readings from the prophets. Uh, in our present practice, uh, on ordinary Sundays, we have the two, the two New Testament readings now, but, but uh, we, may, we may see at some time in the church perhaps a, a revival of the practice, a restoration of the practice of having an Old Testament reading so that in the, in the liturgical proclamation of the church, uh, we are exposed to more of the scripture and more of the Old Testament. But, but now uh, the readings are, are from uh, the uh, first either the epistles of St. Paul or of the other apostles or the Acts of the Apostles and then, then the Gospel. Between those two readings, uh, the, the Gospel is always introduced by the singing of the Alleluia. And you know the word Alleluia means praise the Lord. Uh, it's one of those, there are, we could say, uh, it's, it, I think it's good for, for uh, everyone to, to hear this, even though it might be oh, a little technical. There are two styles of singing in the church. One is a style that we use most of the time, and, and it's a style in which uh, the words 
that we're singing are, are uh, served by the music. That's why we use liturgical chant, that the liturgical chant is uh, it's not something that, that is meant to be a kind of thing that, that appeals to our, our emotions or, or our imagination. It's to be the means by which the words of the text are sung. But then there's, then there's another kind of singing, uh, which, and the Alleluia is an example of it, where it's not so much, we don't, we don't have to uh, analyze every time we hear Alleluia, what is the meaning of the word Alleluia, see? It's the sound of the Alleluia, the joyful sound of the Alleluia that introduces the gospel. Reason why that is, is it is, since it is in the gospel that we have that Within the scriptural manifestation of God to us, we have the fullness there in the gospel that Christ speaks to us most directly, most intensely through the gospel. And we greet that with joy. So before the gospel is proclaimed, the Alleluia is sung. And while the Alleluia is sung, the deacon honors the gospel on the altar with the incense. See, that, that uh, whenever, whenever something is incensed, one, one of the purposes of the use of incense in the church is that it shows that, that something is, being, is worthy of honor. And so we incense the gospel book, we incense the, the icons, we incense the people that are created in the image and likeness of God. So here before the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel as the word of God is honored with the incense as the Alleluia is sung. And then, before the gospel is read, a special prayer is prayed that, that, it, that is to help us get ready for, for hearing the gospel. See, now this, this is something that we have to realize what's being said here. It's not, it, it's, we're not simply having a, a lesson read to us that we've heard before, that we know all about already. See, something new is happening here every time the gospel is, is proclaimed. So let's look at that prayer. Master and lover of mankind, enlighten our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the pro your evangelical proclamations or the proclamation of your gospel. So what the church experience says in the proclamation of the gospel is Christ speaking to her, the bridegroom speaking to his bride through his word. Every time we hear the gospel proclaimed in the church, if we are attending, if we are listening with, as the church, with not only the, the ears of the body, but the ears of the heart, it is always something new. We are always to hear the gospel as if we are hearing it uniquely for the first time. That's the difference in, in for example, we read, uh, we read at Christmas the gospel account of the birth of the Lord. We, uh, we hear on Sunday parables that on one level we are very familiar with, stories that we know all about, we could say. But that's only on the human level. There are more than human words there. They are words that come from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When the gospel is proclaimed to us, in fact, in one of the other 
Orthodox liturgies, uh, the Armenian liturgy, uh, when after the when the gospel is being introduced, the the you know the deacon says the reading from the holy gospel according to whoever it is, and we sing glory to you, O Lord, glory to you. And the other deacon said, let us attend. And in the Armenian liturgy, uh, the, uh, another deacon says, God speaks. God speaks. See, that's how we have to hear the gospel as coming from the mouth of Christ, and it is not something old. It is, it, is, it is not only something old. It is always ever living and vital, as the scripture says, the two-edged sword, the, the, the manifestation of the presence of God through his word. So that's how the, the gospel then is not, is not simply uh, an instruction, but also an experience of the church, most importantly, an experience of the church in, in the present. When, when, the, when we hear the parables in the gospel, they are being told us now. When we hear the miracles in the gospel, the power of the miracles is being revealed to us now. When we hear the birth of Christ proclaimed, the suffering, death, rising of Christ proclaimed in the gospel, that is being, we are entering into the experience of that now. That's, that's what, what happens in the proclamation of the gospel. And that also, we close this first part of the liturgy, the liturgy of the word, that is also what is supposed to happen in, in the preaching of the sermon, the preaching of the homily. Uh, a lot of times, uh, because of, of uh, the influence of, of things that, that are not, do not come from the liturgy of the church, sometimes people think that the, the major purpose of, of the homily is, is to be for the preacher, hopefully someone who is fairly intelligent, to give a, a, an, an interesting and edifying uh, and perhaps, perhaps in some way original exposition of the lesson that has just been read. Now, some of those things may very well go on in a homily, by the way. It's not that they are bad. It's, not, it's, it's only that that's not the principal purpose of preaching in the church. The purpose of preaching in the church is that just as God speaks through the gospel, so also God speaks prophetically through the voice of, of the one who preaches his word. See, it, it, is, it is God speaking to us now to the extent, and this is, this is, of course, should be the cause for great fear and trembling for all of those who preach in the church, to the extent that we are able to not only hear the word of God, I'm talking about those who preach at this point, and to the extent that we, we dissolve our own personality in the Word of God so that we can serve as the mouthpiece of the Word of God. That's to the extent that the sermon will be at least what God wants to say to his people. It, it may very well sometimes be, be original and edifying and, and wise and all of those things, but those are not, that's not what's, what's most important. What's important is that what has been proclaimed in the gospel, the, the now-ness of that, the present of that, becomes, becomes something that, that fall upon the ears of the church to, to be received exactly as, as the food of the word of God. So that's, that's the purpose of the homily. It is, it is a proclamation of the word of God. It's not, it's not necessarily uh, an exposition or a teaching. 
There's, there's lots of opportunities in the church for teaching. But rather, it is a prophetic, and remember that prophecy simply means what God speaks what God is saying to us now. The prophet is the one who can say, thus says the Lord, and it is God speaking through him. Makes it, it the means by which the word of God is effective among his people now. So we'll stop there for, for this evening. We, you see, we'll sum it up by saying that this first part of the liturgy which begins with the assembly of the church, continues on with the entry, the appearance of, of the one through whom Christ the bridegroom is revealed through the celebrant. Christ the word is revealed through his gospel. He leads us to his altar, not an altar on earth, but the altar, the altar on earth that, that becomes the means that the heavenly altar is revealed. He brings us before the throne of God, and then he proclaims his word to us that we might know him, as, uh, as he promised that when the Messiah would come, that all would know the Lord. So having, that, having those first two presences of Christ, first his presence among us as his people, the two or three or two or three hundred or two or three thousand that are gathered in each place in his name. Then we go to, a, to another presence, a more intense presence, the presence in his word. And that happens so that he can lead us to an even greater, higher, and more ultimate presence. And we'll talk about that next time. And now we can have some questions. Can you speak a little bit about the his historicity of, of this particular liturgy and how it came about, the differences between uh, that form and other forms, St. Basil's liturgy and, mm -hmm. and such? Yes. The basic, I'm very glad you asked that question. Uh, the basic pattern of the liturgy, that is, consisting of the assembly of the church, the proclamation and preaching of the word of God, the offering of, the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice, the receiving of Holy Communion, that is received, of course, from apostolic tradition, that basic shape of the liturgy. That it, and of course, the testimony of that is from the very beginning of the church, uh, as, as one of the, one of the great uh, students of the liturgy, uh, Gregory Dix, has said, from Syria to Spain, from one end of the Christian world to the other, from the very beginning, the shape is always the same. The basic shape is always the same. Now, within that basic shape, in each part of the Christian world, uh, the liturgy had a unique development. The liturgy that we use in the Orthodox Church is, is the liturgy of the Greek church. The, church. the liturgy that developed in that part of the Christian world, which, which today would be uh, Turkey, Greece, of course it wasn't Turkey then, uh, Syria, Jerusalem. That, what, 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 that part of the church that, that constituted the, the ancient patriarchates of uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. It's, it's that, that is our liturgical inheritance. Now, there were many, uh, let's give a little summary of this. In 
Of course, the church was, was for the most part one for a thousand years. The, the Greek-speaking church, the Latin-speaking church, the, uh, those, those parts of the church that spoke neither Greek nor Latin. And within, within that Christian world, within that one church, there, there developed uh, what's sometimes called, uh, and I'll just list them for you, there's five liturgical families. The first one I mentioned, it's the one that's ours right now, that of the Greek church. And that liturgy, the Greek liturgy, was later is referred to as the Byzantine liturgy, and that comes from Byzantium, the city of Constantinople, which was the center uh, of, of, of the Greek-speaking church. Then we also have the Latin liturgy the, in two forms. First, the liturgy of Rome, and then the liturgy of the Western churches uh, that, that were, were not, although they used the Latin language, they had, they had their own liturgy, such as in Spain, in France, in, 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 uh, in the Celtic church in Ireland and Britain. So that's two more families. Then another one would be uh, the Church of Egypt, the Church of Alexandria, that had their own liturgical tradition, sometimes in Greek, sometimes in the uh, Egyptian language, Coptic, and then later in Ethiopian also, as, as the church came to Ethiopia through, through the Egyptian church. And then uh, the, the, final, the final group, uh, final liturgical uh, family, is what's called the East Syrian uh, group and, and they are they are the Christians that used the the actually the the language that that was closest to what Christ and the apostles spoke Aramaic or Syriac and that included the, the churches of East Syria and even as far as far east as India that that church that came to India through Saint Thomas the Apostle in, in the first century so all of all of those liturgies have the same basic pattern that each developed with their own unique features. Now, the, the two liturgies that we use most commonly uh, in, in, the, in the Orthodox Church, uh, the, two liturgies that, the two liturgies of the, of the Byzantine liturgical family are the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which was in pretty much the form that we know it now, even as early as the fourth century, comes, uh, comes as a combination of, of the liturgies of the Church of, Church of Antioch, Constantinople, and, and Jerusalem. They're gradually combined as, as, as things get a little, there gets to be a little bit more uniformity as the time goes on. And then the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. And the liturgy of St. Basil was the liturgy that was used in the churches of what, what we call now Turkey, but what, what then was Asia Minor and, and a, a center of the Christian world. And those particular prayers of the liturgy of St. Basil were actually written by him. Now, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is named in his honor, but not necessarily all the prayers of the liturgy were written by him. They come from various sources. Just as the old liturgy of the Church of Jerusalem, that's called the liturgy of St. James, James the brother of the Lord, the first bishop of Jerusalem, that we still, we still celebrate it, at least once a year on St. James's Day, and sometimes can be even more often. But that, that of course, is named in honor of St. James the brother of the Lord. He, he was more, almost certainly not the, the author of, of the prayers of that liturgy. Yet, yet, nevertheless, these prayers all are the inheritance of the early church. So, does that 
Of course, that's, that's, that's in summary form. And anyone, anyone who would like to know more about the history and, and, and uh, development of liturgy, there's many excellent things you can read. But what's important to, to realize is that it is uh, that, and a lot of times uh, people, don't, people don't realize it now, especially the non-Orthodox, that this unity in liturgical worship and by unity, I don't mean strict uniformity. People, people used different languages. People, people sang different things. Prayers were expressed in different ways. But the same basic pattern of assembly, proclamation of the word, offering of the Eucharist, and how the Eucharist was offered, first by the presentation of, of the gifts that we're going to talk about next week, then, then the great prayer of thanksgiving and the offering of the gifts and the invocation of the Holy Spirit and the receiving of Holy Communion. That is, that is something that is, that is uniform in that shape, is found everywhere in the church from the very beginning. Can you then speak to that same point of Father David in terms of music? Mm. Uh, the, the music that we use sounds different yes. from the monastic of the Latin church, at least that which you often hear as chants. Okay, uh, again, again I'll, I'll have to give a summary answer to that because for a more detailed one we could go on for a very, very long time. But the music that is used in the Orthodox Church for the most part, is a continuation, a continuation of and development from the, the music of the ancient church. Now, the music of the ancient church was the music that was taken from the Jewish inheritance, from the synagogue and the temples, and the temple, uh, especially in, in the chanting of psalms. Now, what they did, uh, the early Christians took this Hebrew music and they put it in Greek and Latin forms. And the Latin form of this, of this traditional chant uh, it bears the name of, of, one, of the, one of the early popes that was instrumental in, in organizing the music of the church, Pope Gregory, St. Gregory the Great. It's called Gregorian chant. The, the music, the chant of the Greek church bears the name Byzantine after Constantinople, Byzantine chant. They are two two expressions in Greek and Latin of the same music. They're organized the same way. They have eight, eight, eight families of, of melodies that we call the eight tones, which is, again, the inheritance of the early church. Then, uh, as the music developed in, in the Greek uh, half of the church, even before the, the tragic division, uh, when the faith was brought north to, to uh, the, the Slavic nations, eventually it took them a few hundred years. First, the, the Slavic-speaking people simply copied the Byzantine music. But then, inspired by the Byzantine music, they developed their own, but again, following the accepted pattern. That, that the liturgical singing, the liturgical chant, provides melodies to which all of the prescribed portions of the liturgy are sung. And now in the, in the Western church, the, because the, the development there was, was Latin remained the, the, the uniform language of the entire Western church, there wasn't a, as much uh, plurality of expression as there was in the Eastern church because, of, because the Eastern church used the language of the people. So many, many, many families of chant developed. But they all had the same things in common. Now, 
In the modern, in, in the modern period, the one thing that has changed is that in the last several hundred years, uh, the, the chant of the church, which for most of the history of the liturgy of the church was sung in unison, in one voice. Uh, if you turn on, uh, uh, listen to a record of monks singing Gregorian chant in Latin, it's always going to be unison singing. And if you go even to uh, Orthodox monasteries, you'll often hear much of the singing in unison. But in the past several hundred years, the practice has gradually increased in the Orthodox parishes of harmonizing the music, not using musical instruments, which, which were never used in, in, in Christian worship, as, as continuing on, not the tradition of the temple, but that of the synagogue. And, well, there's, uh, there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, uh, the, the church from the very beginning, you can read all kinds of uh, things that the fathers of the church say about it, was very suspicious of anything, any, anything directed at the sense of hearing that was, whose primar primary purpose was not aimed at the word, but rather, but rather spoke, to the, spoke to the emotions or the imagination, which musical instruments do. Again, it's not, it, by excluding musical instruments from the liturgy, the church is not saying that they are bad. The church is simply saying that they are not part of what we're doing here. They may, they, they may very well have their place in our life outside, as many other things do, many other good things do. There are lots of good things in life that we don't do in here. What we do in here is something very specific. It's not even that, that, uh, that the music that we sing in here is not the only good music there is. It's liturgical music. It's this, it's this inheritance of the practice of the church that focuses on the, the service of the word. That everything that goes on that, that is directed to the sense of hearing is, centers on the word. So there is, not, there is not a place for wordless sounds. That's, that's really what's behind it. Uh, but, but there has been the practice in the past several hundred years of, of singing in several parts, uh, harmonized vocal music. But it's interesting, you know, there's a kind of debate in the church about that. There are some people that don't like it that say we would be far, more be we would be far better off to, to have uh, simpler music, more unison music. Sometimes the choral pieces that have been composed can, some, can on some occasions become so complex that you might as well have musical instruments because the words are sometimes lost in these very, very elaborate harmonies. So there has to be, there has to be uh, uh, balance, sobriety kept there. So that's basic summary. Here in, here in our parish, um, the reading of the epistles is usually done in the typical reading style. But less the, and less. <laughs> but the, the uh, gospel is, is uh, chanted or sung. Right. Um, why is that? Well, first, in general, the, the traditional way of... of proclaiming, either proclaiming scripture or psalmody or, or the prayers of the liturgy is always, always using, uses the form of chant as it, as it did uh, in the synagogue and in the temple, so also it did among the Christians from the beginning. That the use of the, the spoken voice except for, except for preaching 
uh, is not traditional in the church, that everything was always chanted. Most often the, the, the explanation given for that is that the purpose of the chant, just like the purpose of liturgical vestments or anything else that we do in the church, is to raise it above the level of, of the merely human, the expression of, of simply the expression of the personality of the one who's doing it. That uh, we would say ideally when, when the uh, when the scripture readings are, are chanted in, in, the, in the traditional style, that it helps them be what they are supposed to be, proclamations of the word and, and not dramatic interpretations of the reader. Whenever and wherever, uh, and this I, this I think I can safely say, not simply as an expression of, of my own taste, but, but an expression of what the church has experienced in its worship from the beginning, Whenever or wherever the proclamation of scripture uh, becomes primarily, primarily, I'll use that as a kind of, uh, uh, I'll guard myself a little bit that way, primarily an expression of the interpretation or dramatization of the reader, an abuse is going on. Rather, rather, the one who proclaims scripture is to cover up his own personality and proclaim the scripture not, not in a kind of a, a, a dead way, but in a manner that, that is beyond simply a, a subjective interpretation, letting it speak for itself. And the experience of the church has been that the chant is the best way to do that. Of course, that assumes that, that the people chanting the scripture are... are uh, are doing it, doing it well. That doesn't mean necessarily doing it, and that doesn't mean doing it as a performance. It means serving as vehicle for what's being proclaimed. So traditionally, traditionally all scripture readings are to be chanted in the church. If, if they're not, it's because uh, either an adaptation has been made or it's a continuation of, of a practice from the past. Or You know, we're even recommended when we, when we uh, pray the Psalms in, in our own personal rule to chant them. It comes. It comes. <laughs> Brian. Are there uh, at this time any uh, Orthodox churches that are using instruments? And if so, what is your opinion uh -huh. of that? Yes, there are. Yes, there are. There are... Uh, this century is that some of the Orthodox living in what we would call the Western world, almost exclusively in North America, began during the time between the First World Wars primarily, when there, there, there was a desire among, among the Orthodox here who for, who for the most part uh, lived in what would be called uh, ethnic neighborhoods, ethnic ghettos with ethnic churches. There was a desire among a number of the Orthodox to do what they would call uh, Americanizing themselves. And in, in terms of the liturgy, this took the form of such things as introduction of pews, 
to the church which are completely untraditional. There's, there's absolutely no justification for them in the tradition of the church. That, that they are not to be found, they are not to be found even, even traditionally in Western churches. They are, they are a relatively recent innovation when, when the experience of liturgy has for the most part been replaced by turning the church into an auditorium where you sit and listen to something. Where you're even confined and you cannot even assume the postures of worship. Uh, but nevertheless, it happened. Uh, you know, uh, probably, probably in this, in the United States, I would estimate that three quarters of Orthodox churches have pews. And I, I, by the way, I would describe our church, even though we have some in the sides, as a church without pews, because for the most part we're not. But I mean pews arranged like a, like a contemporary Western church, rows of pews, with some, where if you want to stand and in, in the traditional posture, you sometimes have a battle because there's nowhere to do it. Along with that came, came uh, the, generally uh, the introduction by musical instruments, for the most part it meant the organ so that uh, you'll find in, in some Orthodox churches that the singing, even if, even if it, it continues to be the, the traditional chants of the church, it's accompanied by organ music. Now, uh, this is what I will say about that. First, I'll, I'll say something objective and then something subjective. Objectively, uh, we can say uh, that this is not uh, th this is not part of the tradition of the church. Uh, none of these things. Uh, by the way, uh, for and, and who knows what, what some people who, who uh, not so much from around here, but who will listen to this later on will think of this, but apart from liturgy, one of the things that was adopted from American Protestantism by, by uh, American Orthodoxy between the two world wars was the institution of the elected parish council, by the way. Uh, some sort of some sort of uh, political entity that that is elected to govern the church. Well, the church is not a a monarchy or an autocracy ruled by the priest, but neither is the church a democracy with an elected body that governs it. Both of these things are a distortion of the church. I would say in general that that all those things that are foreign to the life of orthodoxy that, that some orthodox uh, embraced in this country, I, I, I do not know of any in instance where they have helped the church. Uh, they're, they are not part of the experience of the church. As far as pews go, they clearly, they clearly ob obstruct and sometimes make impossible the, the traditional standing and bowing and prostrating and, and having the freedom of the body to express with one's body what one does during worship. The, the, the use of musical instruments, if I, were, I, I would say on the one hand, though, it, it, though it's not traditional, probably those churches that have used organs, although I myself uh, am firmly committed to, to traditional Orthodox worship without musical instruments. Probably, if I were to, uh, to say of those three things that, are, that were, were adopted, parish councils, pews, and organs, <laughs> those, at least, at least those are the, th there are probably others, but those are the ones that most immediately come to mind. The organ is probably the least harmful, um, but I, I don't see what place it has in Orthodox worship. 
that I, I do think, I don't think that it's a kind of, uh, you know, airhead argument that, that musical instruments uh, do primarily, uh, are primarily aimed at, at the emotions and the imagination. As is also, uh, you know, in, in, in our church here, uh, I, I've, been, I've been a priest in this church for, for three and a half years. Uh, the reason the reason why I was sent here was was to help this church grow in, in, in traditional experience of orthodoxy. I'm only one of many people who could have done that, but I'm but I'm the one who came here to, to make that possible. And uh, when I, when I came here, uh, you know, we did a lot of things. We had not an organ but a piano that played a lot of the time. Uh, some of you who have never been been here during that time might find that surprising. <laughs> But uh, especially, and especially at, by, by, the time, by the time I came here, for the most part, a lot of traditional Orthodox music was, was being used. But at certain portions of the liturgy, especially at communion time, you know, and there's a lot of time there, it takes a long time in, in the church as large as this for the people to receive communion, that was the time for kind of bringing up the golden oldies and golden favorites <laughs> <laughs> from, from people's various pasts. And, as as anybody who's who's now now I I realized as anybody would would realize when they come to a, a, a place where they are to help uh, people grow in in something that might initially be very new to them you can't do it by by just throwing out overnight uh, thing, uh, things that that are not uh, adequate expressions of orthodoxy it has to be done gradually. So, and, and that's what happened here. Uh, first, first the piano went, and then... Uh, <laughs> and it was, you know, and, and I can say, I can say honestly that, that it didn't go because, because somebody like me made the decision for it to go. I wasn't even the one, as a matter of fact. I was bringing people to a realization that there was no part place for it anymore. Uh, and then, and then there was also a, you know, there were certain things that were sung, even musical instruments aside, some, some expressions of what would be called contemporary Christian music, or even not so contemporary, certain hymns that cannot be said to, to belong to the liturgical experience of the church. That, you know, there's, there's songs that, that refer primarily to the emotions and the imagination. Now you notice that none of the things we, we sing in church do that. Uh, you, can't, you can't sing in the Orthodox liturgy uh, some, a, a song that's talking about some personal experience of conversion. What you sing, it's not that that song is bad, by the way. It's just that what song in the assembly has got to apply to everybody and everything. Otherwise, that, that's, that's the criterion that makes it liturgical. If it doesn't do that, it doesn't have any place in the liturgy. You, know, you, can, you can sing it with friends. You can sing it uh, just like the, the Orthodox peoples through the ages have, developed, have had a very rich musical heritage, not just of liturgical singing, but of singing that, that accompanied every, every part of life. Uh, go to celebrations in, in many parts of Europe, Greece, Russia, the, the Middle East, there's all kinds of singing. Uh, but there is a very clear understanding of what liturgical worship is and what other kinds of singing are. And that's, that's, the, that's the realization that people had to grow in. Uh, people had a, a kind of, I would say, honest and simple understanding. Well, if it's good and we like it, why can't we sing it? <laughs> it's, uh, well, it may be good and we may like it, but it may not have anything to do with what we're doing here. 
And that's what had to, that's something that has to be taught and experienced before. Kelly. Um, in the mountains, I think it's the mountains, the, there's the praise him with flute and harp. Mm -hmm. pra there's, there right. is reference to musical instruments. That's right. Can you explain that? Mm -hmm. that? That comes from the 150th Psalm. And of course, there are many other psalms also, and you can read in the Old Testament about how the, the music in the, the, the liturgy in the temple of Jerusalem, though mainly it's describing what went on outside, you know, uh, most, most of what went on was in the court and, and on the steps, uh, that there was psalm singing accompanied by musical instruments in the temple of Jerusalem. Now, what happened was the ordinary expression of uh, experience of worship of, of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, was not in the temple. There was only one temple, temple in Jerusalem, and the people that went there were some, were the Jews that lived in Jerusalem went there, you know, uh, not for everything. Uh, the, the, in the temple, the sacrifices were offered. Most, mo, far more Jews lived outside even Israel at the time of Jesus than lived inside. And they would try to go to the temple maybe a few times in their life for the big feasts. But ordinarily the Jews went to the synagogue. Synagogue was very different from the temple. No priests in the synagogue, no offering of sacrifice in the synagogue. It was only in the temple. In the synagogue they had prayers, singing of psalms, and preaching. Uh, and they had rabbis to teach. No priests. there. A priest might go to the synagogue, but if he did there was nothing priestly for him to do there. So. It was in the synagogue, uh, it's from the synagogue that, that the, you know, we, we borrowed a great deal of our practice. Now, in the synagogue, even the Jews had stopped the use of liturgical, or, or not, of musical instruments. The reason why was that it reminded them so much of what was going on in the pagan temples. So they, they didn't like it. And so, what even, you can read these kind of commentaries, uh, even, even from, from Jewish writers, even before it comes to, to be part of the church, that uh, when, they, when they talk about the musical instruments used in the temple, they say uh, that that served its purpose uh, in the temple, but now, now we need to understand that spiritually that uh, when we talk about praising the Lord with, 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 with the trumpet and the lute and the harp in the liturgical assembly, we're to understand that as we are the trumpet and the lute and the harp. So uh, that's, uh, some, people, some people don't buy that explanation. They say, well, if that's what it said to, use it, to do in the temple, then that's what we should do too. But we are not the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem and all of its ways and all of its worship has passed away. We are the worship of, of the new Israel that, that worships in spirit and in truth. Uh, and the experience of the church from the beginning has been that, as, that it, it involves our whole being, all of our senses. But as far as the sense of hearing is concerned, the sense of hearing is addressed through always verbally because Christ is the word of the Father. He speaks to us when, when we come to sing psalms or to sing the hymns of the church. It's through those words that we are instructed, through those words that we glorify. But, we, but the, the fathers say that anything else, and, and, and we may be moved by those words too. Our emotions are not bad. Our, however, the fathers teach very wisely that the emotional part of us 
whether it's worship or, or in any other part of life, must never be the thing that we are ruled by, governed by. The feelings are too, are too, easily, as, uh, too easily influenced by other things, especially by our, by our passions, by our emotions. They need to be kept on a leash. So, so we would say liturgically that the leash that keeps our feelings in their place is that, that when we hear, we hear the word. That would be, that would, I think, be a, a least fairly accurate expression of the mind of the church about that through the ages. So I think, I think that those churches that, that for one reason or another, either because they a generation ago started to do things they thought were American or whether they're, they're groups of converts that still have practices from, from their past, I think that they should wean themselves out of it uh, and, uh, and grow in the traditional experience of the church. That's so Father David, if we were transported to Russia or Greece, other than the language barrier, we would be able to enjoy and participate sure. in a liturgy. Sure, yeah. You, even if you went to a church in this country that doesn't use the English language, you see that it's the same liturgy being celebrated. Now, every, every church has its own little variations, uh, but it's always within the, the same basic pattern. Sure. In fact, by the way, I was... Uh, I was saying this on, on Sunday uh, when I was visiting with, with Brian and Anne-Marie. Uh, you know, ordinarily, we say it's just a matter of common sense that it's good for us to be stable in where we go to church. That's why we have our parish church, and ordinarily that's, you know, we attend the services in our parish church. But for people who are new in the faith, I don't think it's a bad thing to once in a while visit another Orthodox church. Uh, it's it's good just to see other other Orthodox expressions. I wouldn't I wouldn't make a regular habit of it, but once in a while, especially when the, maybe when there's something special going on uh, in in another parish, like the patronal feast day of another church, uh, or or somebody somebody uh, some special uh, speaker is coming to visit another church, or, or there's something something special going on. I think it's a good thing. I, we don't. We don't want to be. We want to be faithful to our to our local church, but we won't, don't want to be congregationalistic about it. You know, we're part. We're part of the church that exists throughout the whole world. That's what, that's what being Orthodox is, and this is our local expression of it. But we don't want to. We don't want to live as if we're we're inside walls. You know. That's okay. Let's have a blessing. God is with us through his grace and love for mankind always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen.